Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's national women's current affairs programs. The show is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Tanhang Fan. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land that you are hearing us from. On today's Women on the Line, we chat with Natalie Con Yu about the Feminist Writers Festival, mentorship in the Australian literary industry, academia and motherhood. Later in the show, we hear from Xu Ling Chua, who chats with us about memoir writing, her relationship with her mother and sexuality. Natalie Con Yu is a creative writer, editor and academic. Her work looks at creative writing by women and feminist literary criticism. She is currently working on a project which examines the place of women and writers of colour in the Australian literary industry. Let's hear from Natalie. Hi, my name is Natalie Conyu. I'm a writer and an academic at VU, um, and I'm very happy to be appearing in this year's Feminist Writers Festival, which is coming up next week. So I just wanted to start with what you will be talking about at the Feminist Writers Festival. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so our panel next week, which is myself, Jacinda Wood, writer Jennifer Mills, will be talking about the importance of mentorship, particularly in the writing industry and for women. So, Natalie, I'm really interested in the book you wrote about female friendships. Does that have any relationship with mentorship and, I guess, women in writing? For sure. Lots of relationships. I mean, firstly, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had a really strong writing group of feminist women. We were all really great feminist, you know, writers and advocates and teachers. We we really believed in telling stories about women that hadn't been told in the popular culture. So the idea of the book Just Between Us was about talking about the importance of friendship and the way in which it shapes our lives. And it was getting away from that narrative that we have, that really bitchy, catty narrative that you see in you know, mainstream media everywhere about women being in competition with each other and just really acknowledging how important friendships are and how devastating they are to women when they go wrong. That was the impetus for writing the book and it was born out of our personal experience. And mine in particular, my my best friend of 20 years dumped me and she was in Canada so I couldn't really confront Mm -hmm. her about it. Bit of a long way to go (laughs) to rock up to her house. And through this group of girls that I had met while I was teaching session at Uni of Melbourne, that we decided to form a writing group here in Melbourne because um, I'd left my writing group in Perth and felt really quite um, lost without them. And, you know, we'd been sharing work for a long time and kind of getting to know each other when this happened. And we sat around and we thought, this is an important narrative that that's missed in our culture. Should we Should we write an anthology? Should we do this? And... Having five of us, there were five of us then working on the project was fantastic because we were able to not only divide up the work but kind of reassure each other when things got tough and, um, 
you know, encourage each other to keep going. So it was a really important experience to have that group of women writers doing that with me, yeah. Mm. And um, I guess, like, because you uh, work in academia, do you think that uh, the structure of academia allows for those friendships or those kind of mentorship to happen and flourish? That's a really interesting question. I don't think it does, no. I think academia, the higher up you climb the rungs of academia, just like any any business, I, I imagine, um, the more dude-heavy <laughs> the rooms become and the less space there is for women. And you, you see fewer women at the top. You see less women professors, less women associate professors than men. One of the things I did a couple of years ago with a woman who I would consider to be, you know, my mentor was start a feminist ride, uh, feminist, sorry, a feminist research network at VU. We wanted to do this because we felt that feminist research wasn't being taken seriously at the university. We wanted a body that would talk about gender equity issues within the university, so a body that women could go to um, with queries and questions, how do I write this grant? Can you give me information for promotion? And one of the very first things we did was with the Feminist Research Network was to set up a mentorship program. Mm. So academia is one of those spaces, uh, literature is another where, you know, the people at the top all tend to be male um, or masculine. And as a younger woman, you're never quite sure of how you're going to get there. And so actually having people who have um, done the hard yards, who have succeeded, who have had to take that different trajectory from their male peers to get where they've gotten, to have those experiences, to have that wealth of knowledge is actually really important, we felt. Mm. Um, and is this group still running? Yes, Feminist Research Network is still going. It's taken quite a hit lately. We um, lost a few members last year and with me being on maternity leave um, this year has been difficult, though I am trying to stay in contact with the group. But, yeah, it is still running and I think they're having a an information session next week on applying for promotion. So those sessions are great because there are women there who will read other women's promotion applications, give feedback, I think you need to do this, I think you need to emphasise that, I think you need to change the language around. Um, and that's, I think, a really wonderful thing to do, you know, to have women who will give that help to younger female academics. Definitely. I find that in the, like, my experience with mentorships and mentoring is that a lot of, I guess, that men have, especially like male writers, have this entitlement to say that they don't need a mentor or that they they can climb, I guess, the literary ladder without a mentor. So that's um, been my impression of the literary world in that sense. And I think it's interesting in terms of um, a lot of mentorships I'm seeing pop up in the creative arts and writing and um, industries like for emerging writers or yeah. So I think I'd love to hear more about like what structures you think work for mentorship. Well, I I agree that men think that they don't have mentors, but they absolutely um, benefit from informal mentorship all the time. Mm-hmm. They benefit from seeing men not so different from themselves at the top, seeing men, you know, not so different from themselves, getting really good book contracts. They would benefit from a, an editor putting their arm around them at a party saying, hey, I want you to meet this, you know, this guy, this guy's fantastic. 
So I, I know a lot of men in the literary world would like to think that they're doing it on their own, but they're absolutely not. In my opinion, they're absolutely not. They are um, supported by networks that they do not see, which is the nature of privilege, is to be supported by networks that you do not see and you do not acknowledge. I think if you're a woman in the literary world, we have there are just fewer role models, there are fewer, there are less clear cut routes through um, women still in our culture. Fuming can sap all of your creativity. Pregnancy alone can sap all of your creativity. So I think it's really important that women are able to talk to other women in the industry and find ways around that so-called ladder that men seem to climb, as they think, so easily and without without any help at all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think having these mentorships that have popped up, there's, there's one through Writers Victoria that popped up a while ago. There's a, a new one, I think, next chapter through, I think that's Writers Victoria as well, or the Wheeler Centre. The Wheeler, Wheeler Centre, yes, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, has popped up. I think formal and informal mentorship in the industry is really important, particularly mm. for, for women. Mm. And if you're a woman writer of colour, then doubly so. Women on the Line. On Community Radio Around Australia, you're listening to Natalie Conyu chat to us about mentorships, the Australian literary industry, and the Feminist Writers Festival. I'm your host, Tan Hung Pham, and you're listening to Women on the Line. Don't forget you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. So I read your article in Peril, and I'm just going to quote you here, but in the article you said that being an academic and having a child are so similar. Both blur the boundaries of work and form, um, of restlessness and boundless energy. I'd love to hear about, like, if you think this energy, that kind of restlessness and boundlessness comes through in your writing. Um, at the moment, I am a very restless writer. I am trying so hard to write, and it's really difficult with a three-month-old baby. I, I was speaking to a friend of mine, a male colleague, who has just, like, pumped out another novel very, very quickly, and I was so um, in awe and annoyed by his success that I remember going to the staff room. I was at VU going to a staff room, with the baby who was just under three months at the time and breastfeeding because he needed to be fed and at the same time taking notes on my phone for my novel, you know, with one hand and spelling mistakes everywhere that I'm going to have to deal with. Both jobs, I find, they require so much of yourself, especially if you're a creative writing academic and you're interested in research. It requires you to, to actually be passionate about what you're doing because... It's a hard road. You don't always get the grants. Most of the time you won't get the grants that you apply for. You'll get a ton of rejections on an article before it will ever get published. You might get bad feedback from your students. It just, you know, you you need a passion for the subject to kind of keep going. And that consumes a lot of your time and your mental energy. Um, likewise, children are the same. They are, you know, wonderful creatures who need you all the time. Both of them sit between that absolutely pleasurable and at the same time just completely overwhelming place. So 
as to how that plays out in my writing for a long time, it doesn't because it's hard. It's hard to write when you have small children. It's really hard. And I think one of the things that we don't do as women is, you know, give ourselves a break um, around that, you know, that feeling that as soon as the baby is born that we have to be productive again, that we have to, you know, get moving as if we've somehow been slack by being pregnant and and giving birth. But... um, you know, one of the things I have uh, decided to do for myself is to take two hours a weekend away from my family to just go to a cafe and, and to write and just have a headspace because I think motherhood doesn't really give you a good headspace for yourself. You're so consumed with um, the little people who really need you that, yeah. Mm, interesting. Um, so I'd just love to end on hearing about your upcoming projects. So you're writing a novel at the moment. Could you tell us about that? Sure. It's very, very preliminary. Um, I'm writing about a woman kind of discovering her family history and having to deal with issues of uh, race and gender and how she tells the story of her family. Um, so loosely based on my own family setting um, the historical portion of the novel in Mauritius, which is where my my father's family is from, which is a really interesting place in terms of um, race and culture anyway because they have no Indigenous population. It's an island of um, migrants and slaves and servitude. So it's very, from a post-colonial perspective and a gender perspective, it's a really interesting place. So that's one of the things I'm writing about. I'm actually also writing an essay um, that I hope will be published in Overland about pregnancy because I've had two very terrible pregnancies and one of my pet peeves around pregnancy in Western culture is the whole idea of keeping it secret until you're 12 or 14 weeks along because that's often the time that the women women need the most support because you're at your sickest and you're most tired. So that idea of, um, you know, going to trying to tough it out for those, you know, those brutal three months, I think, is, is counterproductive for, for women individually. Um, I'm also working on... A group of writers of colour and myself are really interested in getting a count up for the publication rates of writers of colour in the Australian um, publishing industry. So we're working on a grant for that at the moment because our feeling is that the number is low and that the stories that migrants or refugees or Indigenous Australians get to tell are a certain kind of story within Mm. the industry. I can see you nodding your head there yep, in agreement. Yep, yeah. yep. So actually having those numbers will be really important for us to kind of thinking and mm. writing around that. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> You just heard from Natalie Conyu chat to us about mentorship in the Australian literary industry, academia and motherhood. Catch her at the Feminist Writers Festival, where she will appear on the Mentoring Writers Mentoring Feminist panel on Sunday 27th of May at Queen Victoria Women's Centre from 12 to 2pm. In its second year, the Feminist Writers Festival will run from Thursday 24th of May to Sunday 27th of May. This year, the festival will centre around the theme, Rewriting the Story. 
You can check out the program online at feministwritersfestival.com. Up next, we hear from Xu Ling Chua, who is a writer focusing on sex, culture, femininity, and growing up. She is working on a collection of essays on coming of age as a young Asian Australian woman. Xu Ling is one of the recipients of the 2018 Willis Centre Hot Desk Fellowship. Let's hear from Xu Ling. So to start with, you wrote a piece for um, Mijin, is that right? Mianjin. Yeah, Mianjin. Um, and it's called Through the Looking Glass. We'd love to hear um, an excerpt from it. So, so when you're ready to start. When I mention I'm writing about sexual awakenings, a friend exclaims, how many can you have? It's not just one moment, I insist, nor is it linear, as I have come to realise. Scared as I am of being pigeonholed, as that Asian sex writer, I swing back and forth between I'm creating important political work and why would anyone read my I fucked a guy and I liked it story? Then again, perhaps this story is not about me and M, nor the specifics of how we fucked, but rather about what women are taught to expect. Scrolling through texts and tweets, I construct a chronology of books and fucks. Does it matter that I devoured Fantasian by Larissa Fum three days before I met M, and a concise Chinese English dictionary for lovers by Xiao Lu Guo two weeks before I next saw him? Had I not assembled a two year syllabus on sexuality? Had I not given myself my first orgasm between our first and second encounters? Would I have eventually discovered pleasure? Far from X led to Y, I see my sexual awakening as a cumulative process where the physical, psychological and intellectual bleed into one another. Before M, I assumed I didn't like sex. It took a good lover and much reading to discover that sex could be enjoyable. I could have lived my whole life thinking sex was mediocre at best. As an Asian woman, as a woman engaging in casual sex, I believed I had even less claim to pleasure. I deviated from the script. Love, marriage, then children, and was thus undeserving of happy ever after. Fantasian rewrote this narrative. Here, at last, was an Asian woman burning with sexual agency. On rereading, I noticed the mirror motif. When the narrator and Dolores first meet, the latter explains Jacques Lacan's theory of the mirror stage. He theorized that the formation of an individual's identity, the I stage, he calls it, coincides with the mirror stage of development. The self forms in response to witnessing a reflection of itself. You become an I when you're imaged. I see my tweets and my writing as a hall of mirrors, refracting self upon self upon self. Enjoy sex is a Western concept, says Gwaz Z. For a long time, I believed this too. Thanks. Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, so I guess I want to start with how you ended the piece, Enjoy Sex um, is a Western Construct, um, or a Western Belief. Could you maybe elaborate on that quote and how you feel about it now? 
So I guess when I first started having sex, I felt a lot of guilt. And a lot of that was wrapped up with what I was taught as a child. My mum's understanding of what it means to be a good Asian woman and having sex before marriage, um, they were not things that she taught. That was not the way she brought me up. And so when I first started having sex, um, I felt a lot of guilt because of my relationship with my mum, but also because I wasn't good at sex. And obviously, looking back now, I realised that everyone's bad at sex when they first start. So it took a lot of writing, like interesting, like interestingly for me, um, putting all those thoughts out into the public has actually been part of the process. Coming to terms with that guilt and doing a lot of reading. So I read a lot of feminism, feminist texts, and as I mentioned in this piece, Through the Looking Glass, a lot of those texts, the mainstream texts anyway, are written by white women and they don't often talk about race or culture. So for a long time, I thought the guilt I felt was an Asian thing and not normal. I think like many of us, we were brought up with the ideas around white feminism and sexual liberation <laughs> and that being the model to strive for. I'd love to hear about how white feminism shaped your understanding of sex. So one of my first exposures to feminism would be Clementine's Ford um, column in Daily Life. I learnt so much reading that column, especially around issues of consent, mm. uh, which were issues that I personally had to deal with and have written about as well. But just like um, lines, I think, I'm not going to be able to quote Clementine exactly, but women being made responsible for men's actions or men wheedling pe women into having sex with them, that's not actually consent. And I, having that exposure to feminism was really important to me because I had to, all these issues I had to personally deal with. Um, but then it came to a point where white feminism wasn't enough for me anymore. Um, I think when I first read Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay, that was incredible. And then I started wondering if there were feminist texts by diaspora Asian women writers, and I started trying to find them. So first through personal essays, um, and I referenced two of them in Through the Looking Glass. Uh, one is by Elaine Ma, and one is by Jenny Zhang. And also oh, reading Giselle Onye Nguyen's work, mm. so she's amazing. Um, then moving on from memoir, I, I needed a bit more, so I started looking at fiction. So that's when I discovered Fantasian, which is an erotica thriller about a young Asian woman going to Yale who meets her doppelganger. Mm. And she's actually a bisexual character, which I don't mention in my essay. That that novella just changed my mind, like blew my mind. Like I had never read sex like that before, like where this Asian woman is enjoying sex. Like it was so new to me because every time I'd read work by Asian well, not every most of the work before Fantasian, it was often Asian women like feeling guilty or struggling with their like complex feelings around sex and to read this character in Fantasian who like absolutely like enjoys sex, like wants it and God, like, yeah, it changed my life. I loved what you said before about how 
as you were writing more about sex, it helped you understand more about what you liked and what you didn't. And I love that as a process for understanding um, something more physical in the body. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, inter- yeah, it's, it's a process. And I think I've, reading back over old work now, I see myself not just develop as a writer, but develop as a person. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's, it, it's a physical Sex is so physical, but there's also obviously so much um, psychological wrapped up in that. So trauma um, or guilt. Sorry, I just keep talking about guilt. We were talking about your relationship with your mum and her feelings, like her harbouring guilt as well. Um, So I'd love to hear about your thoughts on that. When I first started having sex, there was this sort of like ghost or shadow hanging over me which was kind of my mum in the background saying, like, growing up, she, we, when we watched TV, she'd, you know, see characters that were, like, dressed really provocatively, and she'd be like, oh, gumhao, which in Cantonese, like, translates in English, like, oh, so that's so flirty or, like, so sexy. But there's also, like, behind that, this more sinister undertone, like, oh, she's, like, a slut or someone who, like, will fuck anyone. And... Even though my mum never sat me down and like said explicitly to me, don't have sex before marriage, I knew like implicitly that was her expectation of me. And when I first started having sex and some of those early experiences went entirely consensual and I was hurt and I wrote about those experiences and when my mum read those pieces, like she felt guilty for she felt like she blamed herself for what had happened to me so for example if I hadn't moved to Canberra if I had stayed in Melbourne she would have been able to protect me from those things happening to me and I think it's really difficult because I know she's trying to protect me and to completely reject her views it's not that simple Mm. It's so different, as you were saying um, prior to this interview, how um, maybe what our white friends will be like, <laughs> oh, they don't understand. They're like, no, your mum's backwards or whatnot. But um, you and I both know that there's yeah. a depth to that. Yes, yep. it's a lot more complicated um, and nuanced. Mm, for sure. Um, I'd love to hear about, I guess, um, your approach to memoir writing because um, you said to me a bit earlier that you're branching out of writing just about sex. Mm-hmm. Um and when I first came across the word memoir, which was many, many years ago, I, I just thought it was like much older people writing about their past lives. Yeah. But as someone who's not extremely old, like, you're, you know, <laughs> you, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear about your approach to memoir writing. Yeah. So I think there's this common, um, this is, so I guess when pe- most people hear the word, so there's a quite a distinction between memoir and um, autobiography. So I guess autobiography tends to be older people, famous people, who are looking back on their whole life and writing about it in a chronological order. Uh, whereas with memoir, you can focus on a specific specific, specific themes, um, such as sexuality or mental illness or um, growing up, and or like on a specific period of your life. So I think that's why young people can write memoir because they don't need to have had that whole life. Mm. Um, for me, I a lot of my memoir to date has really been about growing up so I have written about sex but a lot of those pieces aren't really just about sex they're about making mistakes they're about my relationship with my mum 
they're about consent, they're about um, self-acceptance and building that confidence to ask for what I want. Um, so I like memoir because I've been writing for quite a while, but I think there's just so much power in personal stories to know that this experience has actually happened to someone. And when I read memoir and I'm like, oh my God, I've had that experience myself too. Like I feel less alone and I feel, oh, this has happened to someone else. And that's kind of why I started writing memoir because I want to be able to pass on that feeling to other people. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> You just heard from Shu Ling chat to us about memoir writing, mothers, and her writing on sexuality. Women on the Line is one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com. Our programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. Thank you for listening to Women on the Line. I've been your host, Tan Hung Pham, and tune in again next time. the simple expression of the complex thought. We are for the large shape because it has the impact of the unequivocal.